said. As we come to the scripture, now let me ask you to pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we now pray that as we come to your word that you would bless it really to us and bless then us to your word that as we listen and hear it that we would know that we're hearing the very voice of God as the scripture is read and may it quicken us in ways beyond which we cannot imagine and this I pray in Jesus name Amen. Turn to Isaiah in chapter 40, please. Isaiah chapter 40. I read the whole chapter last week. So I'm going to read the whole chapter again this week. Isaiah chapter 40, please. Verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. A voice says cry and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all the beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Go up, uh, go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He'll carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are, who are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and, and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the bath of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for its silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in? Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, 
Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I shall be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him has no might. He increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And then together we say, The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. Hmm. An expression that begins this passage, comfort, comfort, my people, says the Lord. It's what I call getting biblical whiplash. Because if you've been reading, as we mentioned last Sunday, you've been reading through Isaiah and you read through the first 39 chapters, you you end there with a deep sense of, of judgment upon Everyone, but particularly upon the people of God. You might remember we read last Sunday from chapter 39 a bit that that the last word in that chapter is that there's an exile coming, uh, that the, the, the people of Judah are going to be um, overcome by the Babylonians and, and, and exiled, taken out of the land. And, and we mustn't uh, romanticize that. That was horrible. The destruction of the city and of the temple in Jerusalem, and the people exiled, taken to a whole different land to be enculturated really into that particular place so that they would lose everything that they knew about their own people, about their own God. And there was great devastation. And it came because of the, the sin of the people. Way back in the very first chapter, as, I, as Isaiah is introducing all that will come, He writes this about the people of God. Verse 2, he says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they've rebelled against me. And so, sorry to begin so negatively. I know I'm supposed to start with a joke or something, but, but, uh, but, but this is just where we find ourselves in this text. To really get it, we need to see this too. And, and so, so he, Isaiah begins by saying, the people have rebelled against me. Listen how he puts it. This will break your heart. The ox knows its owner. The donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. You know, here's the Lord. Here's, here's the God who's loved this people. So much that he's chosen them to be his. So much that he wants them to be and called them his treasured possession. So much that he took them out of, out of slavery in, in Egypt years before. So, so much so that, that he's been with them all these years and, and, and forgiven their sins even, even when they've rebelled against him. And he says, listen, an ox knows its master, a donkey knows where it goes, but my people don't even know me really. Be like as a parent saying, my, my kids know their boss, my kids know their teachers, but my kids don't know me. 
And that's essentially what's happened here. So he says, ah, a sinful nation, people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They've forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They're utterly estranged. Now, remember, if you'd have walked through Jerusalem in these days, you'd have seen a bunch of nice people. Right? They didn't walk around with horns on their heads, spouting blasphemies against God. They, they, they thought they were living in a way that was pleasing to the Lord. But, 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 but they weren't. You see, the, the, the presenting issue of their lack of trust was as a nation that they would make alliances with other nations. And you say, what's wrong with that? Well, God said, trust me, don't trust anyone else. Trust me, don't trust anyone else. And so, so they continued to make alliances with other nations. And God kept saying, if you make alliances with these nations, they will one day come against you. And that's exactly what happened. They made alliances with the great nation of Assyria. And Assyria came and destroyed this, the northern kingdom. They, they made alliances with the Babylonians. And the, ultimately, the Babylonians came and destroyed the southern kingdom, if you will, and exiled its people. Uh, and so, so, so God said, don't do that. Trust me. You don't need to trust Anyone else? And that was the presenting issue, the underlying issue, the foundational issue, really, as we find is idolatry. Even in the passage I've, I've read in verse 18 of, of Isaiah 40, which I won't even come close to getting to today. But he says, to whom then will you liken God or to what likeness compare with him? An idol? He says that, again, this is, this is Isaiah being as sarcastic as it could possibly be. He says, an, an idol, a craftsman, craftsman, a goldsmith overlays it with gold. And people make this thing. And then they bow to it. That's crazy, people. Why would you bow? Why would you make it as an ultimate thing, that thing which isn't ultimate at all, that you've made with your own hands? Why, why would you do that? And that's the, that's, the, that's, the, that's the deep-seated issue, if you will. And so they didn't trust God, and they went looking for other gods to trust. And, and he said, this is abysmal, really. You don't even know me. After all I've done, you don't even know me, you see. So that's what we're set up for. And so I don't know if you're just reading through Isaiah and you come to chapter 40, you're, uh, it's going to get worse, right? <laughs> and then he said, no, 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 no. Don't leave this out. Comfort, comfort my people. That is, it's so important. You've got to, got to emphasize this, emphasize it and emphasize it. This comfort that is, I want to come and I want to speak tenderly to them now. I want to speak as a, one who loves to his beloved. I want to speak that way tenderly. I want to speak right to your heart. I want to whisper, if you will, in your ear these wonderful expressions. I want to strengthen you. I want, you, I want a word to come to you that will encourage you, that will give you strength, that will give you hope, that will enable you to make And you did, That's why I call it biblical whiplash. You're just going from one point to the other. It's like I read from last week, Ephesians 2, where we're told that we're, we're, we're by nature children of wrath. And, 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 and we, we realize that. And then, then this wonderful expression, but God, but God, you know, who comes with, with, with a great love with which he loved us. Wow. And just kind of whips you around. And you say, how can he be like that? But he is like that. He wants us to know that's the way he is. That he really does Love And so he says to them, uh, I want to give you this, this, this word that your warfare is ended. Uh, they would take that, I assume, literally on the one hand, meaning that, that, that the warfare with all the enemies. And so they're going to go back and restore um, Jerusalem, which they did. But, but it's more than that. Their warfare with God is ended. That's the good news. There's no longer going to be any hostility between them and him. Uh, and, and how's that going to be? 
Well, it isn't that they first changed. It's that he's come to them and, and that, that he's going to pardon their iniquity. He's going to pardon their iniquity. And, 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 and he's going to, they're going to receive double for all their sins. Remember, we struggled with that a little bit last Sunday. But, but whatever it means, it doesn't mean that they pay for their sins. It means that, that God does. Just as he expresses in chapter 53 of Isaiah, all oh, we like sheep have gone astray. Um, each one to his own way, but he lays upon him the iniquity of us all. He pardons us by dealing with our iniquity on this one who will come. Um, and now voices are heard. Verse 3, a voice cries. Verse 6, a voice cries. Verse 9, there's a herald of good news. And you want to say, well, who is this voice crying? Is it the prophet Isaiah? Or is it God? I love to answer these questions. Yes. Right? Um, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way. Well, you get the sense that there'll be a, a human voice there preparing the way of the Lord. But then we read in the end of verse 5, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And then verse 6, uh, a voice says cry. And so the prophet says, what shall I cry? Well, he's doing the crying. But then we read in verse 8, but the word of our God will stand forever. And then verse 9, there's a herald of good news coming. And the herald says, behold your, behold your God. So, so how would all this come? That's the question at this point. How would all this come about? How, how would this iniquity pardoning come about? How would uh, receiving double for all their sins and being blessed beyond measure with the grace of God? How will all, all that come? Well, uh, it's going to come because... One is going to come to them in the wilderness. Now, anytime you read the word wilderness in the Bible, especially in a poetic passage, you kind of have to stop and scratch your head and, and you say, what's wilderness here? It goes along with a desert. And, and anytime you read wilderness and desert, you go, that doesn't sound good. Being in the wilderness, being in a desert, it makes it sound like life is difficult. It makes it sound like life is austere. It makes it sound like I'm rather lost. It makes it sound like I'm in danger because there's wild animals in the wilderness and in the desert there's no water and all these things. I need protection. I need food and I need water and all these things. You don't get the impression that that's where I'm at right now in the wilderness, in the in the desert. And so there's going to be a, a voice crying in the wilderness that's preparing the way for the Lord to come. You see, he's going to come. That's the point. The Lord is going to come. Uh, and, and, and it's so important that his way be prepared so that his arrival, you see, won't fail. So that there are no hindrances in his way. And so, again, in a poetic kind of way, um, uh, Isaiah is to say, it tells us that every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill will be made low. And the uneven ground will be made level, you see. And we can all picture that. It's Kansas. Uh, little did we know that the Lord is coming first here. But, but, but you get the sense of this is, I'm sorry for that. But this is, I think of that every time I drive through western Kansas. This is the Lord. I, I always, you'll never be able now to drive through Kansas going west without thinking about Isaiah chapter 40, right? This is, this is the way it's made for the Lord. And, and it's a poetic way of saying, but, but, but it's a way that they would understand because 
if a king was going to come to your community in those days, even in our days, if the president's going to show up or if a dignitary is going to show up, uh, we want to make his way easy. We don't want obstacles. So in our day, there's a motorcade that goes through red lights and, you know, all that sort of thing and, 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 and moves pretty quickly. We want to make his way straight so we can make sure that this dignitary, he or she arrives uh, on time and safely without hindrance because it's so important, nothing more important for that day than that particular dignitary to show up. And he's saying the same thing here. If the king is going to come, then, then we really need to, we might even have to build a new highway. There might not even be an adequate highway, so we might have to build one. Or if there is a way, then if it's got potholes, we've, we've got to fill them in. If there's, if there's big hills, we, we've got to lower them down some way to make a way for this king to come. And so he's saying that this is what's going to have to, to happen. Uh, this way, if you will, is going to need preparing for this one to come. And we ask the question, so who's actually coming? Well, Isaiah, of course, is giving us hints of this. Um, he, he speaks to us this strange word about a virgin giving birth in chapter 7. Then in chapter 9, he speaks more particularly. And he says, for to us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, you see. And so having heard that, having read that, they're, they're anticipating this one who is to come. And it, it sounds a lot like God, given his name, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and then of the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no one on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, you see. So, so we get the fact that somebody special, somebody important, somebody who sounds a lot like God is coming. And he's going to be the one who's going to sit on David's throne and he's going to rule and reign over everything always. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And then in chapter 11, we read this about this one who is to come, verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, we know who Jesse was. He was David's dad. And so we realize that this one who's to come is coming from Jesse. He's the line of David. He's going to sit on David's throne. And it says, um, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And uh, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide what his uh, ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be his belt and faithfulness, the belt of his his loins. Then it goes on with these wonderful words. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf, and the lion, the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. And you're thinking, what idiot parent is going to allow their kid to lead a wolf and a lamb and a leopard and a lion? Well, it, things will be different. Things will be different, you see. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra. Not a safe thing to do generally. But things will be different, you see. And the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. 
They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. See, someone great is coming. And he says, now we need to prepare the way for this very one to come. And he's very honest here. He says, the one who is coming is actually the Lord. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway, you see, for our God. That's the very one who is coming. This one who is the Lord. And if you have a Bible like I do in the English Standard Version, and this is in most of them, the word Lord is capitalized, which means it's the word Yahweh. It's the covenant name of God. It's the name that God gives to Moses, that he's to tell the people, I am the Lord, I am, has sent me. This is the very one. And so they should realize, all right, the one who delivers, the one who, he's the one. Who's, who's actually coming. And so the word through the prophet Isaiah is that his way will be prepared. I've always wondered what it would be, what it would have been like to have lived during the time that Jesus was born. Have you ever wondered that? I, I hope you wonder it all the time, this time of year at least, What would that have been like to have been born, especially if you're an Israelite? And it's been a while since you've heard from the Lord. There hasn't been a real prophet of God for hundreds of years, 400 approximately years since the last big time recognized prophet has come. That doesn't mean that they hadn't thought about God for 400 years. They had things that happened, but, 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 but it's been a while. I mean, that's a long time, 400 years. To remain a people, to have a history together, without any real word from the God who had given you words before, sent you prophets before, and you hadn't heard from anybody. And then there's this guy named Zechariah. And Zechariah was a priest, and his wife was Elizabeth, and they were old, past childbearing years. And they had no children. Uh, they were praying about that, but, but not with great expectation, if you will, given their age and situation. And, and there they were. And so one day Zechariah was doing his priestly duties and, and he went in to burn incense and all of that. And there were many others praying and, and, and an angel came to him. And this angel comes to Zechariah and he says, your prayers have been answered. You're going to have a son and you'll name him, you'll name him John. And, and, and the, 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 the um, angel speaks to Zechariah in a particular way. And he says, this is in Luke chapter 1 and verse 13. He said, don't be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call him John. And you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. And then finally he says this. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he'll go before him in spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. I don't know. I'm just thinking if I'm Zechariah, that takes my breath away. 
Because I'm a priest, so I know stuff. I, I know the Old Testament. I, I'm not ignorant of these things. I, I would know Isaiah 40. I would know these things that when, when the Lord comes, when the Lord comes, when God comes, that there'll be one to prepare his way. And, and now, miraculously, this angel shows up, tells me that my wife, who shouldn't have any babies anymore, and hasn't been able to, all of a sudden is going to be able to, and, and, and we're going to, his name is going to be John, and, uh, and the meaning God saves, and it sounds a lot like he's the one. He's going to come in the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the, of the, uh, uh, to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord, a people prepared. Now, as you might remember that John was a little suspicious. Uh, I didn't quite <laughs> receive that as well as the eye. And so the angel said, I'm going to give you a sign. You're not going to be able to talk until your baby's born. And that's exactly what happened. And then when his son was born, he announced his name was, was John. And this song I read earlier in the service, I won't read the whole thing again, but in verse 76 of Luke chapter 1, uh, Isaiah, I mean Zechariah sings, And you, child, meaning his son John, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall Visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zachariah was getting it. He understood who this John would would be. In fact, you can only imagine what it must have been like for a group of religious leaders to show up literally in a wilderness, in the wilderness where John happened to be. And, and he would give the impression that he was a prophet of God and he would look like and act like even Elijah in the wilderness, the way that he dressed and what he ate and all of that. And now this word comes through him. And, and the apostle John says this in chapter 1, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John, that is the Baptist, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and they did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He said, I'm that guy. And, and again, bells and whistles should have been going off in everybody's heads at that point in time. Uh, I, I don't know what, what that would have even been like. Now, the religious leaders wanted to deny that. They didn't want to believe that, but, but it was really true. And if you had ears to hear, that's, that's, the, that's the moment. That's the sense of it. All these years, a break with Zechariah, clearly when the angels came to Mary and Joseph and all of that. And, 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 and yet now, uh, he says to them, John does, here I am. I'm that very one. So important is this that it's recognized or put into each one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, here in John in a particular way because he always gives a little bit different spin. But in all of the, the Gospels, we, we find it. And um, For instance, even in, in Matthew in chapter 3, verse 1, 
In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, how did John prepare the way of the Lord? How did he do that? How did he make ready for the Lord's coming? Well, he baptized with a baptism of repentance. Baptism in those days was an odd kind of thing. We're not quite sure even how to, how to trace its, its history. There's, there's various accounts, whether it was common or uncommon. It's difficult to even, even know. But it was offensive to say that a Jewish man had to be baptized for repentance in order to see the kingdom of God. Because such a person would understand that being a child of Abraham was his ticket. And yet John comes saying, no, it's not your ticket. God, if he wanted to, could take rocks and raise up children of Abraham. That's not really hard. But you need to repent. In fact, that's the same language Jesus uses. He came on the scene. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He says, if you, if you, if you want to make ready, you see, there's this repentance. And repentance from an Old Testament perspective is to turn around. There's a change to turn around. Perspect, uh, repentance in, 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 in the New Testament perspective is not simply to turn around, but you're turning around because there's been a real change in you. There's been a real change in your mind. There's been a real change in your heart. Something's happened. You're going to think about the kingdom of God. You're going to think about God entirely different than you did before. And since you're thinking about the kingdom of God differently than you did before, everything changes. Everything changes, you see. In our Westminster Shorter Catechism, repentance is defined like this, question 87. What is repentance? Well, repentance leading to life is a saving grace <clears throat> excuse me, by which a sinner, having truly realized his sin and grasped the mercy of God in Christ, turns from his sins with grief and hatred and turns to God with full resolve and effort after new obedience. Let me read that again. Repentance leading to life is a saving grace. It's a saving grace. That is, it brings salvation by the grace of God because repentance is a gift by which a sinner, having truly realized his sin and grasped the mercy of God that comes through Christ, turns from his sin with grief and hatred, that is, towards his sin, and turns to God with full resolve and effort after new obedience. He's the one that Jesus talks about as poor in spirit, who realizes his spiritual bankruptcy. He's the one who mourns over his sin. And he's the one then who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. He first recognizes his sin and realizes what it does. It, it separates us from God. It results in our condemnation. Puts us under the wrath of God, and rightly so. And thus he mourns about that. He says, no, that's, my life is wrong. And then receives this mercy of God through Jesus. And in the midst of that, 
there's a turning. You remember what John said about Jesus? About himself, John said, I baptize you with water. But about Jesus, he said, that he baptizes you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The sense is, that's what's needed. is isn't just this water that symbolizes something good, cleansing. But what's needed is this work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Jesus will bring. Well, what this one, the Lord, will bring is this Spirit of God. He will work in you and change you. Change you on the one hand so that you can see your sin. Change you still further so you'll mourn over it. Because you see the misery that it causes. Change you still because you'll see that, that, that living this way will bring misery upon your life now and for always. And change you as well because you'll say, let me follow you. Let me follow you. That's the whole deal. Um, Thomas uh, Watson, a 17th century writer in a little book called The Doctrine of Repentance. Well, it wasn't little. They never wrote little books in those days. uh, Called The Doctrine of Repentance. Puts it like this. He says, Repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. I like those two phrases, that inwardly humbled, you see your own state before God. Inwardly humbled, but visibly reformed. And you see the outward working of this because you, 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 you see the expressions of faith and, and you see the life. That's when John the Baptist was preaching this repentance and, and baptism for repentance. He said, no, it, it should change your life, the, the way you're living. You should see the fruit, he said, of of repentance and, and we too. So, so John, you see, comes to prepare the way of the Lord and his word is repent. His word is repent, turn from and turn to repent. The Lord has come. The Lord has come, you see. Repent and turn to him. And then what he says will happen is that we'll see the glory of the Lord, verse five, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You see, when the Lord Jesus comes, he comes to reveal God. Um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The Word has become flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth, you see. He's the one who, who glorifies God. And that was the big deal for Israel, of course. They saw the glory of the Lord in the cloud when they left Egypt. They saw the glory of the Lord when the, when the tabernacle was, 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 was first dedicated and the temple. And they would know that the Lord is among them, you see. That's this sense of the glory of the Lord. It's the visual manifestation of the presence of God. The glory of the Lord, the visible manifestation of the glory of God. So Moses wanted to see, remember, when he asked God, can I see your glory? And God said, no. If you see that face on, you'll die. But, but let me, uh, I'll hide you in the, in, the, in the rock and I'll pass by you very quickly. And he revealed his glory. He said, I'm the compassionate one. I'm the forgiving one. I'm the one who loves and I'm the one who judges. I'm the just one. He revealed his glory. And so when this Lord comes, he's going to reveal his glory. He will be the visual manifestation of the presence of of God. Jesus. So no surprise. When Jesus would say. You should know what's coming next. If you've seen me. <laughs> you've seen the father. 
Why? Because, he didn't put it this way, but I will. He's the visual manifestation of the glory of God. Uh, The author of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, puts it like this, verse 3. All the women who studied Hebrews recently remember this. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So he is. So Jesus is, you see. And we can see the glory of God in him. We see the wisdom of God. We see the power of God. We see the holiness of God. Most particularly, we see the very love of God. We see God's power in Jesus. I mean, we, I, I love, I don't know about you, but I love reading through the Gospels and reading about the power of Jesus. It's astounding, and we have to be careful. We don't read it too quickly, especially as adults, because we're so accustomed to reading this. We want to check off our reading for the day. But when he looks at a storm, and he says, peace be still, and it's utterly still, you should take your breath away. Who can do that? Right? Who can do that? Oh, and he's walking, uh, and, and, and a woman who's had, had a problem, uh, an infection, no doubt, some kind of bleeding for, for a dozen years, and, and she's gone to everybody to, 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 to try to get it fixed, and nobody can help her, and she just sort of touches, touches the end of his garment, and, and, and boom, she's healed. Jesus said, I felt power being released. We should just marvel at that. And then at the same time, somebody comes to him and says, my, my son is sick. Oh, my son is dead. And so Jesus said, well, let's go find him. Let's go get him. And he, he goes and, and he raises this child uh, who is dead back to life. We should, we should marvel at that. You see, the very, the very power of God and the compassion of Jesus. We see the compassion of, of God in him as one little wonderful expression in the, in the Gospels. It precedes many of his healings. It simply says this, and he had compassion. It is he had a job to do. He said he had compassion. There's a sense in which he looked upon some at least and he said, I can't keep going. I've got to stop. I have to make you well. And I, and I love the picture. That's why we're coming tonight, by the way. I love the picture of the disciples trying to push the children away from Jesus. <laughs> and he just simply can't let them. Why? Because they're his children and so he blesses them. And that's a significant expression. He blesses them, you see, as his very own. He can't not do that. He has compassion upon them. We see the power. But we see God most especially in the cross of our Lord Jesus. That's where we see his glory. That's where we see the glory of Jesus. That's where we even see the glory of his Father because it's here that we see the wisdom of God. Right, we see his wisdom. The big problem is, the problem to be dealt with, the reason he must come, is that there's this separation between human beings and God. God has made us, but we rebelled against him. And so now what do we do? Because this sin, you see, is, is, a, is a huge deal. And we can't solve it because it's so much a part of us. We keep at it. We can't stop it. And it's put us in a relationship with God that, that makes us condemned before him. 
and we're under his wrath. And so, so that's our problem. And so if we take what we really deserve, then what it means is that we'll be condemned for all eternity. And that'll be that. That's what we deserve. And so how, how are we going to deal with that? And, and God just simply can't say, well, you're forgiven because he's, he's just, he's righteous. How, how can he overlook all of this, all of this evil and all of this sin? And so who can solve that dilemma? Only the wise one who knows how to deal with that, how to solve it. And he said, oh, I'll send my son. And to be made like you. It's a wonderful expression in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10. That it was fitting. That God. Sent his son. It's fitting. that it was Just like God first of all. To do something like that. And it fit. It was perfect. It was the only way to really make this happen. To, re- to really solve this, this problem. And so Jesus comes as us for us. And takes the guilt of our sin upon himself. And thus this one is worth us all takes the guilt of our sin upon himself and pays it. And then, of course, once he's paid it, then he's free to go, which means he's resurrected. There's nothing to hold him. And then all those who are in him, and we know all those who are in him by all those who trust in him, then are forgiven their sins. And God is just, but at the same time, loving And that's what we're to see. What we're to see in this is, oh yes, the holiness of God because he judges sin. But we're never to miss the love of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, you see. For for God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's the love of God. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things, you see? And we know, therefore, this love. And it, and we cannot be separated from it. It's that kind of love. Let me ask you this. Have you seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Have you seen it? You see, what does it look like? Well, first this. On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks this too, he gave his disciples. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. In the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks this too, he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And if often as we eat of this bread, the apostle tells us, and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, we declare the glory of God. That's what we're declaring. When we declare his death, we're declaring the glory of God. His wisdom. His power. His holiness, his love. So what does it look like? Well, it looks like this one who is the very son of God dying for us. Taking his, I'm sorry, our guilt upon himself. And it looks like our sin. We see it finally. 
But not just alone. We, we don't see our sin just as our sin. There it is, stuck there. No, 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 no. What we see is we see our sin in the context of the blood of Jesus. And when we see it in the context of the death of Jesus, then we see the glory of God. Because then we end up with the expression, He, you know this expression, He for me. The glory of God. Who else would do that? Oh, the apostle said, sometimes we might dare to die for a good person, a righteous person. (laughs) But God demonstrates his love in this. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see it? Do you see it? That's the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray now that you would enable each of us to see it, to know it, to believe it, to rest in it, to rely upon it. We've seen the glory of God in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray now that you would enable this, enable us to come to this table in faith. So please take this bread and this juice and set it apart in such a way that we know we're in the very presence of, of Jesus. That he's here with us. And we may behold him. Oh, we won't see any figures, I suppose, in our mind's eye even or any of that. But enable us to know the glory of God. Through the forgiveness of our sins and the presence of Christ with us. And this I pray in Jesus' name.